Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Folks, today's episode is going to sound very familiar. That's because it's a redo of one of my first episodes, The Alamo. I wanted to redo this one because I've grown a lot in learning how to podcast over the course of the last year, and I felt like I didn't do the story enough justice, which I hope to remedy for you now. Nothing has changed when it comes to the history of The Alamo. It still stands as a shrine to the memory of the fallen who stood for liberty and freedom. Its legacy has inspired dozens of stories throughout history and bolstered the courage of countless people around the world as they faced hardships, such as the war in Ukraine right now. Some may condemn the men who died there, saying they died needlessly. And when you look at the history surrounding it, that might be so. But to them, in the moment, they thought it was the only course they could take, and so they fought bravely and died as a result of that decision. Their memory is now revered by every Texan and every American who knows the story. Numerous books have been written about it, both fiction and nonfiction. Several films and TV movies have been made about it, as well as dozens of podcasts, songs, and paintings, making it one of the most inspiring American stories known to man. It's one that I have said is near and dear to my heart as well. Back in 1960, when John Wayne was making his film of the Alamo, he said the story was a true American one, very similar to that of the American Revolution, which, when you look at the Texas Revolution as a whole, it is indeed very similar to America's war for independence. The major differences I'm going to change between this podcast and the first one is that I'm going to be sharing with you a little bit more about her key defenders, Crockett, Travis, Seguin, Bowie, and Dickinson. Many of those who died at the Alamo had left the United States and headed for Texas for a new beginning, all for various reasons. Some to forget their troubles, others to aid in the fight for independence, and some because they wanted their own piece of land to live out their days in peace. And while many were successful in that endeavor, none of them, set out for Texas to die in a little adobe church a short distance from the town of San Antonio. And none of them thought they'd end up as heroes and legends before the sun was high in the sky on March 6th as the result of their decision. Now, let's mount up and ride into history through the green hills of Tennessee and North Carolina, from the swamps of Louisiana to the raging rivers of Arkansas and Missouri, till we reached the little town in South Texas, known as San Antonio de Bejar, where lies the crumbled ruins of a little adobe church known as the Alamo. When and where the story begins is vital to the history of the battle, for it was not just a 13-day siege in the middle of winter. 
You see, in the early 1830s, large numbers of settlers... You see, in the early 1830s, large numbers of settlers from the U.S. had started arriving in Texas, which at the time was still part of Mexico. As more and more immigrated to the large territory, they realized there were enough of them to ask for representation in Mexico City, for, for they were more than happy to live under Mexican rule. In fact, one of the leaders of the eventual Texas Revolution, Stephen Austin, even supported the rise of Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana to power. Austin became deeply involved. Austin became deeply involved in Mexican politics. Austin became deeply involved in Mexican politics, but that quickly backfired. While trying to advocate for Texas to become an independent state of Mexico and be granted a seat in Mexico City, he was arrested under suspicion of trying to start an insurrection and was imprisoned in January of 1834 and would not be released until December. Of the same year. He was fully freed in July of 1835 and made his way back to Texas, arriving sometime in August. And as soon as he got back, he set to work doing whatever he could to make Texas an independent state. Now, another reason why Stephen Austin was arrested was because the man he supported to lead the country, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, had abused the office of presidency and declared himself instead a dictator. He repealed the Mexican Constitution and was determined to crush the so-called Texan Rebellion, despite it being just talks at that time. But he claimed they weren't paying their fair share of taxes and tariffs and thus needed to be put in check. Starting to remind you of anything in particular? Now, Santa Ana was a vicious and cruel man. Some may disagree with that sentiment, but from my research, that's what I've found out. He was determined to crush any and all elements of rebellion throughout the country, including the Texan Revolt. But as he was in the heart of Mexico, and in the winter, it would be slow going. You see, his ego was higher than a hot air balloon on a Saturday, and he was even so bold as to call himself the Napoleon of the West. This self-proclaimed title has always fascinated me. Remember, Napoleon was long since dead by the time Santa Ana had come to power, and he had met with utter defeat and died in exile. Later down the road, Santa Ana proved just how much he truly was like Napoleon. While Austin was trying to figure out how to fully free himself, skirmishes had already started in South Texas. In the autumn of 1835, Texan forces under the command of Ben Millam, James Neal, and Jim Bowie fought and captured the town of San Antonio de Bejar from Mexican General Martin Perfecto de Caz. The battle was more or less a siege as well, beginning October 12th and ending December 11th. The final push happened on December 7th, when the Texans moved rapidly through the town, taking it house by house, till they eventually trapped de Caz in the Alamo and forced him to surrender. Now, while the battle was a success for the Texans, it proved very costly. Ben Millam, one of their corps commanders, was shot through the head during the battle. Now, I'm going to be perfectly honest here, folks. Ben Millam could have avoided being killed. But he took a page out of the old officer-in-charge playbook of, let me get a better look at what's going on by leaving cover, looking through a spyglass, and making myself a perfect target. Which basically is like hanging a sign on the front of you that says, 
Hi, I'm the guy in charge. Shoot me. I dare ya. Well, folks, they dared. Yeah, old Ben Millen died what I like to call a stupid death. No kidding. Stupid death, stupid death. Hope next time it's not you. <laughs> That's just a little jingle from a show called Horrible Histories that I highly recommend you checking out. It's fantastic. I've always wanted to play that, so there it is. After the capture of San Antonio, a majority of the Texan forces went back home, as they were mostly militia and needed to tend to their families. Sam Houston, who was by now the commander of the Texas Army, knew the dangers of the Mexican Army and that they were not a force to be trifled with. Houston was also close to 200 miles away at this point, at Washington on the Brazos. Jim Bowie had just arrived with dispatches from Colonel Neal. After reading them, Houston sent Bowie back to San Antonio with orders to inspect the defenses there and blow up the Alamo if he thought it the right course of action. Neal had made lots of improvements to the fort by the time Bowie got back, and the latter was impressed by what his superior had accomplished. He also found out that they didn't have enough oxen to move the artillery pieces and thought that they could hold the fort if they got enough reinforcements. However, in early February, Neal received word that his family was deathly ill. He departed immediately and returned, albeit briefly, when he found out that there was a dispute of who should be in command. Returning to the Alamo, he reached an agreement with the two candidates. Lieutenant Colonel Travis would command the regulars and Colonel Bowie would command the volunteers. Neal then departed and would play no further role in the future of the Alamo, although it should be noted that he tried to deliver supplies before learning of its defeat. When Neal departed for home, he left the command in the hands of a 26-year-old, deeply indebted lawyer from South Carolina, William Barrett Travis. Down on his luck and his law practice and marriage failing, Travis had heard of the exploits and provisions that Texas had to offer. Wanting a fresh start, he set off for Texas and arrived in May of 1831. He promised his wife that he would send for her and their children as soon as he could, as well as have enough money to pay off his debts. Neither came to be. As the years went by, Travis saw how the situation in Texas was deteriorating quickly. Determined to fight for his new home, he was one of the first to sign up for the Texan Army. He gained fame amongst the recruits when it became known that Santa Ana had personally ordered his arrest. At only 25, he was already known as a leader. He quickly rose to the ranks of the small volunteer army and became a lieutenant colonel in the cavalry. An ambitious and courageous man, he was Neal's first choice to take command of the San Antonio garrison when he departed. Despite the fact that he only had around 30 soldiers under his command at the time, he was still willing to do whatever was required of him. Joining Travis as one of the few men in charge was a powerfully built man of roughly six feet in height, sandy-colored hair, and a reputation that only two other men in Texas could rival. His name was Jim Bowie. A wealthy man with a fiery temper when riled and enough tenacity that could tame a charging rhinoceros. Before he even came to Texas, he and his knife had become quite famous. On September 19, 1827, he had acted as one of the seconds in a duel between two men in Louisiana. The duel ended in a draw, and both parties were willing to drop the matter and go their separate ways. However, this is early America, folks, and back then, if things got heated, it meant fisticuffs. 
And sure enough, that's what happened. Something got said, and the two parties started going after each other. Bowie ended up getting his head smashed with a pistol, stabbed with a sword cane, and shot at several times, being hit at least twice. But somehow, he was still able to kill the attacker with his knife. A massive blade of at least 12 inches in length. After that fight was over, Bowie was legendary. In 1830, he moved to Texas and became a Mexican citizen. He bought a mill and land through Stephen Austin and began to flourish. And the following year, he married Ursula Veramendi, the daughter of the vice governor of Texas, whom he had also gone into business with. He and Ursula had two children and planned to live a long, happy life together. However, fate dealt him a cruel blow. In the fall of 1833, his wife, her parents, and their two young children died in the cholera epidemic of Mexico. Bowie took their deaths extremely hard and began to drink excessively, but he eventually found a purpose when trouble started brewing and the threat of war began. The last man to enter the Texas War for Independence and leadership of the Alamo was a man who as soon as you heard his name, you knew who he was and what he stood for. Former Congressman Davy Crockett. He was half horse, half alligator, and a little touch to a snapping turtle. <laughs> he wasn't as tall as his fellow leaders, but what he lacked in height, he made up for in reputation and braggadociousness. He had a knack for spinning the yarn and a better reputation as a huntsman. There's a legend that he killed at least 105 black bears in just one hunting season. Probably this is a myth, but back then, it just added to his already growing reputation. He had also earned the reputation as a fighter when he volunteered to fight against the Creek Indians after the horrific massacre at Fort Mims. He was appointed one of the top scouts in Andy Jackson's army and did his job well despite the fact that his intel wasn't taken seriously until it was confirmed by another officer who returned after Crockett had. Nah, it didn't go over too well with Davy. Eventually, they defeated the Creek Indians and peace was restored to the lower region of the United States. Crockett saw some horrific things during the fighting and he wrote them down in his autobiography, which was published in 1834. After returning to his family and civilian life, he started to see other ways he could help the settlers in Tennessee. He realized that he had a way of connecting with people and decided to run for the Tennessee General Assembly, which he won with ease in 1821. In the coming years, he excelled in politics and decided to run for Congress in 1825. He lost that race, but he did win two years later and remained in Congress for two terms. He was then defeated in 1831, but returned to Congress in the next election from a new district. States were still growing at that time, and growing populations meant that new districts could be created and thus represented in Congress. It was during his final term that he vehemently opposed President Andrew Jackson's Indian Bill. He was friends with lots of local Indians in his district, and Jackson's bill to move the tribes west he found horrendous. He said he would not vote for the bill and would do everything he could to stop it. However, his opponents grew to include Jackson and his vice president, James Polk, and they found someone who could defeat him in 1835. He was, and it was then that he uttered one of his most famous sayings. After losing the election, he told the people who voted him out of office, Y'all can go to hell, and I will go to Texas. And that's what he did. He mounted up with a handful of his friends and headed for the Mexican territory of Texas, arriving in January of 1836. 
He and his men then swore allegiance to the government of Texas and vowed to fight for her independence. I actually must correct myself there. Crockett was an upstanding man, and he actually refused to sign the oath of allegiance till they changed the name to the Republican government of Texas. The reason why is best described by this clip from the 1960 film, The Alamo. Republic. I like the sound of the word. Means people can live free, talk free, go or come, buy or sell, be drunk or sober, however they choose. Some words give you a feeling. Republic is one of those words that makes me tighten the throat. Same tightness a man gets when his baby takes his first step or his first baby shaves and makes his first sound like a man. Some words can give you a feeling that make your heart warm. Republic is one of those words. On February 23rd, the advance guard of the Mexican forces arrived in San Antonio. This was so unexpected, in fact, that a large amount of the defenders had been in town having a drunken party. But as soon as they were alerted to their arrival, they fled with as many provisions as they could back to the Alamo and slammed the gates shut. The siege had begun. They were only about 150 men inside the two-acre wide fortress, and they would need roughly five times that amount to defend the walls properly. But those men were not there, so they had to make do. Travis took command of the north wall, while Crockett went to their weakest point along the south wall. The south wall was so weak, in fact, that it had a wood palisade to cover where the adobe wall had crumbled to non-existence. Along with his crackshot Tennesseans, Crockett would hold the south wall longer than any other position was able to. Bowie, by this time, had taken ill. We don't know with what quite possibly typhoid or tuberculosis, but whatever it was, he became bedridden and incapable of command. Travis then assumed sole command of the garrison. He sent out couriers, trying to get desperately needed reinforcements and armaments. One of the junior officers, Juan Seguin, was one of them. A native of the area, he knew the terrain upside down and backwards, but little did he know that when he left, he would never see his compatriots again. One of the couriers made it to Gonzalez and returned with 32 men. While this is a far cry from the amount they needed, they cheered for them as if they were. For they had answered the call and came to their aid. But with each passing day, more and more Mexican troops arrived, until they numbered between 4,500 and 6,000. And then the he-bull himself arrived. Santa Ana, on a massive black stallion, rode into San Antonio and observed the defenders in the mission. Ever the aristocrat, he dispatched a courier to offer terms of surrender to Travis. When asked for his answer, Travis stood silently for a long moment. Then he tapped the ash from the tip of his cigar off and lit the fuse of the cannon he was standing next to. The roar stunned the courier and infuriated Santa Ana. He ordered a blood-red flag be raised in the bell tower of the San Fernando Church and that the Deguello be played indefinitely. The defenders saw the flag flapping in the breeze and then they heard in the distance a lone trumpet. 
playing the mournful song. They knew it meant no quarter, and they were prepared for that possibility. They were hopeful more men would come to their aid, for if you recall, Travis had sent out multiple couriers with letters explaining their situation. One such letter that was sent out on the second day of the siege has now become infamous. The contents of the letter show the eloquence and the panache that Travis possessed. Here is what Travis wrote. Commandancy of the Alamo, Behar, February 24th, 1836. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment in Canaday for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion, otherwise the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis, Lieutenant Colonel, Commandant. P.S. The Lord is on our side, I believe. When the enemy appeared in sight, we had not three bushels of corn. We have since found in deserted houses 80 or 90 bushels and gotten to the walls 20 or 30 head of beeves. Even under dire circumstances, Travis believed God was on their side. And I believe that he was as well. There was one last pivotal moment that occurred before the final battle. The line in the sand. On the last night of the siege, Travis called all the defenders into the compound and told them there would be no reinforcements coming. As they were mostly volunteers, he wanted to offer them a chance to escape if they wanted to letting them know he wouldn't bear any ill will towards any man who decided to escape. Travis then removed his saber from its scabbard and drew a line in the sand in front of him. Then, standing on the opposite side of the line, he turned and faced his men. There was a long pause. Then he swallowed. Squaring his shoulders, he cleared his throat. Those who stay, cross over the line. Each volunteer stood where he was for what seemed like an eternity to Travis. Then one man spat out his jaw, picked up his rifle, and walked across the line, stopping directly in front of Travis. Slowly others began to cross over as well. More came when they saw Davy cross over. Then Bowie, who had been brought out on his bed, raised himself onto one elbow and asked to be carried across. Two men who hadn't yet crossed nodded to each other. Then, picking up the bed, they crossed over and remained with the men who were already there. I want you to take a moment and imagine yourself there. 
For 12 days, you've listened to the constant drone of the trumpet blowing the tune that called for your death. You've withstood almost a non-stop artillery barrage that pounded the walls that protected you. You've not been able to eat all that much, and water is starting to run low now also. You also know that the garrison is low on ammunition, and now you're being asked to stay and fight? What do you do? You've pushed the Mexican troops back already, but you know the final assault is coming and will undoubtedly be the last. Not because they'll go away if they fail, but because you and every other defender will be dead and the tyrant will have been successful. It's a heavy decision. Take a moment and think about what you would have done if you had been in that situation. Would you take the chance that offered life and freedom? Or would you feel a surge of patriotic pride swell within you, knowing that you have to stand your ground despite the odds? You've said over and over again that you'd be willing to die for a cause you believed in. And now that possibility is looming. So I ask again, what would you do? Finally, they all looked around and saw that all had made the decision to fight, save one man. Luis Rose stood alone on the other side of the line. A veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, he said he wasn't ready to die yet. The other men nodded, understanding his decision. They shook his hand, then, after helping him darken his face with soot, they lowered him from the wall and he escaped through the Mexican lines. The men then returned to their posts and waited for the inevitable. I wonder how many were able to sleep. I believe that most of them lay awake long into the night, just looking up into the black sky, remembering the good times they enjoyed in life. Some probably wrote letters to loved ones, hoping that when their bodies were searched for valuables, that the Mexican would have one ounce of sympathy and make sure that letter got delivered. Others probably pulled a cork and had one last drink of whiskey around a fire, smoking pipes and cigars, perhaps playing one last game of cards. Still others started to think about the hereafter, did they live a good enough life? Would they enter heaven? I'm sure some prayed for the first time in a long time that night. Not to be safe from the battle, but that God would remember them when they died. One or two may have gone around helping others understand the true meaning of faith. Some probably shrugged it off saying they didn't believe in anything after death. Dickinson went to his room where his wife Susanna waited for him. She had refused to go when all the women and children were given the opportunity to escape before the battle. Taking her into his arms, he kissed her. Then picking her up, he carried her over the threshold and closed the door behind them. Then the light that glowed in the window was blown out. Crockett was with his Tennesseans, by the palisade gathered around the fire. An accomplished fiddler, he rosined up his bow and placed it to the strings of his fiddle and played a tune that reminded them of their homes and families that were so far away now. Jim Bowie was carried into one of the innermost rooms of the chapel, barely conscious. He raised his hand in gratitude to the men who had brought him there. They then placed his pistols on either side of him and his knife on his right side, where he could easily get to it if possible. Travis returned to his quarters where his slave Joe waited for him with a drink. Taking it, he patted the black man on the shoulder. He then walked to his desk and placed several letters and documents inside an ammo bag. Then, turning back to Joe, he asked that he deliver them to Houston if he survived. 
knowing there was a good chance that he would. Joe nodded and placed the ammo bag over his shoulder. Then, picking up his own rifle, he made sure it was primed and ready. Then, looking back at Travis, he smiled. Travis smiled sadly in return. He loved the man like a brother, despite being his owner. Joe was a confidant. Travis could vent to him where he couldn't vent to others. He then poured them both a drink and raised a toast to happy times and to Texas independence. In the end, all, I believe, stayed up remembering the good times they had in life. Till weariness overcame them, and they slept one last sleep. Before dawn the next day, the attack commenced. Mexicans charged the Alamo from all sides. The men, still drowsy with sleep, leapt to their battle stations as the Mexican troops blasted the walls with suppressing musket and cannon fire. Travis and Joe both awoke and hurried outside with their weapons. As Travis ran with a shotgun, he called to his still drowsy men, Come on, my boys, to the wall and give them hell! Reaching his position on the north wall, he peered over and saw massive troops just reaching the wall. Cocking his shotgun, he emptied both barrels into the mass. Screams erupted over the din as dead and dying men fell to the ground. Ducking back, he grabbed two pistols and cocked them as Joe leaned over and fired his rifle, taking down a sergeant. Travis then leaned over again and fired both pistols, but as he started to back away from the edge, he felt a searing pain in his side that propelled him back faster than he wanted to, and he fell from the wall into the wood framing. Joe hurried down to him. Travis knew his wound was mortal, so he placed a bloody hand on Joe's shoulder and motioned for him to go hide in the chapel. He then tried to reach for his sword, but he couldn't. Joe helped him get it, and with tears in his eyes, he then cupped Travis's face and made eye contact with him for the last time. Travis smiled as blood trickled from his mouth. Joe then stood and ran as fast as he could into the chapel and found a closet to hide in. A few minutes passed and Travis heard the Mexicans surging over the north wall. A Mexican officer hopped down and laughed. Then he noticed Travis lying mostly limp but still alive. The officer approached him and raised his sword to deal the fatal blow. But just as he came down, Travis maneuvered his blade so that as the Mexican came down, he impaled himself. But he still stabbed Travis through the chest. Travis gasped for air, but none came. He saw the officer collapse, and then saw two soldiers take aim and fire. He was amongst the first to fall, but far from the last forgotten. Along the east wall, Captain Dickinson and his gun crew fired their cannon towards the charging Mexicans, killing close to a dozen or more and wounding twice that count. He then looked to his left and saw the Mexicans coming over the north wall with no sign of Travis anywhere. He jumped down from his position and ran into his quarters where his wife still waited. Great God, Sue, the Mexicans are inside the walls! All is lost. If they spare you, save our child. He then hurried back to his position, but just as he got there, their cannon exploded, sending shrapnel on men flying everywhere. He looked around and saw a different battery still operational. They hurried over with it and aimed it towards the north wall, which was now being swarmed by Mexican soldiers. 
Dickinson raised his hand. Then he and Lieutenant Bonham raised their rifles to provide cover, but after they had done so, they were both shot. Dickinson through the heart. With a guttural cry, he fell and rose no more. Crockett and his men along the south wall had jumped up when they heard the alarm, and looking out into the darkness, they saw the enemy hurrying towards them. Raising their rifles, they opened fire and dropped the entire first rank of soldiers. They then grabbed the next round of rifles that they had previously loaded and fired again, dropping another full row. But then the Mexicans returned fire and a quarter of his men went down. Somehow though, they kept them at bay with enough fire for several minutes longer than any other group of defenders. Crockett stood and fired again, and laughed as a bead of sweat trickled down his cheek. Suddenly, through the din, he heard someone shouting his name. Turning, he saw a dying man falling forward just a few feet from him. He hurried to him and rolled the man over. Knowing that they were about to be overrun from the rear, he yelled for his men to hightail it towards the chapel. The men heard, and while some made their escape for it, others stood and fought off the overwhelming odds with their rifle butts, knives, and tomahawks. They blooded the enemy something fierce. Crockett and his men formed a makeshift line and hollered for any of the others to try and get to them while they covered them. But only four or five made a break for it, for the others were too far gone. Suddenly, one of Davy's neighbors from the Obine River country fell from two shots to the chest. Rolling him over, the dying man whispered, Give my birdie. Looking up with a fire in his eyes, Davy saw a cannon sitting close by, her gunners dead or wounded beside it. Knowing full well it might be empty, he took a risk and ran for it. Two of his men went with him and helped him turn it towards the advancing troops from the south. Grabbing a piece of glowing timber, he touched it to the fuse and it fired with a loud boom. Screams erupted from the Mexican soldiers as bits of steel, nails, chains, rocks, and musket balls shredded their ranks. Davy looked on in a minor state of shock. Well, that's more like it, he muttered to himself. Knowing there would be no time to reload the cannon, they sprinted once again for the chapel. One of the two who had gone with him tripped and before he could get up was bayoneted to death. Davy and the other man turned and fired their final shots. Then seeing three others join them from around the corner, they prepared for the inevitable. Armed with knives and tomahawks, they fought fiercer than a bobcat. Davy hacked and slashed in every direction and took upwards of eight or nine of the enemy before he was shot from his blind side. It knocked him over, but he struggled to his feet. He threw his knife at an officer and killed him. And as he prepared to come down with all his might with his tomahawk, he was shot again. Stumbling forward, he killed one last soldier and died. Jim Bowie was in and out of consciousness throughout the night. But as soon as he heard the final assault begin, he tried to raise his head, but fell back into his pillow. A short while later, he awoke and heard the Mexicans were closing in on his room. He once again tried to raise himself up, but couldn't. Closing his eyes, he whispered a silent prayer. God, you know I'm about to meet you face to face. If you could grant me one final request, give me enough strength to die like a soldier. Give me the strength to raise these pistols and my knife. The door rattled, and then he heard them hacking away at it. 
Suddenly he felt his strength return and he raised himself up and cocked his guns. The door burst open and several soldiers ran inside the small room. Two were killed when he fired his pistols. Raising his knife, he intended to slash or hack as best he could, but before being able to, he was bayoneted to death. His knife fell from his limp hand, and he breathed his last. All in all, the final assault on the Alamo lasted a mere 90 minutes. After the battle was over, Santa Ana ordered that the bodies of the defenders be laid out on pyres and burned so as not to receive a Christian burial. Any messengers who may have tried to get back to the Alamo would have seen the smoke and known that the fort had fallen and the fate of her garrison sealed. They would have then turned their horses and hightailed it back to General Houston to inform him and anyone they happened to meet along the way of the news. As for Susanna Dickinson, she and her daughter were spared when they were found and were brought before Santa Anna. As was Travis's slave Joe, although it is reported he was wounded when he was ordered to reveal himself so as to avoid being killed. After interrogating Mrs. Dickinson, it is reported that Santa Anna was enthralled by her daughter Angelina and even said he wanted to adopt her. Susanna said no and Santa Anna relented. He then gave her and Joe enough provisions to make it to Houston's camp and sent them on their way. News of the massacre began to spread like wildfire. Men from all over started showing up to list and fight for Texas independence. They wanted to avenge the deaths of their neighbors and friends. But as they were preparing for the eventful battle, a new rumor came trickling in. And this rumor, when it became known, fueled the raging fires of anger and determination all the hotter. It had become known that Santa Ana had quickly advanced onto Goliad after the Alamo had fallen and forced the surrender of Colonel Fannin and his entire command. The prisoners thought they would be released in due time. But then, on March 27th, Palm Sunday, Three weeks to the day after the Alamo's fall, the Goliad garrison were marched out in three columns and then executed at point-blank range. Over 400 men were murdered by Mexican troops, despite being prisoners of war. Those who were not immediately killed were clubbed or bayoneted to death. Colonel Fannin himself was taken into the courtyard, set in a chair, blindfolded, and shot through the head. Only 28 men survived by either faking their death till the Mexicans had moved on or by the intervention of a local woman named Franchita Alaves, nicknamed the Angel of Goliad. She persuaded the Mexican officers to spare close to 100 Texans and successfully got out several more men the night before the massacre took place. Less than a month later, the Texan army, still small in numbers, were as ready as they would ever be for the final fight for Texas independence. Mounting his horse at San Jacinto Creek, Sam Houston addressed his men. You will remember this battle. Remember each minute of it. Till the day that you die. For today, remember the animals! The Texans attacked and surprised the Mexican troops who were having a siesta, more or less. With chants of, Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliath! They overwhelmed and routed the Mexican army in a mere 18 minutes. More than 650 Mexican soldiers were killed and over 200 wounded. 
Santa Anna proved how much of a coward he truly was by trying to escape in a private's uniform. He was caught and brought before Sam Houston, who was resting beneath a tree with a badly wounded ankle. The men wanted to hang him right then and there, but Houston knew that would not solve much of anything, save bloodlust. Instead, he made Santa Anna sign over the entirety of the Texas region and surrender. Santa Anna, knowing this was the only way he could walk away without his neck being stretched, agreed to the terms. And thus, the Republic of Texas finally gained its independence. Folks, I did want to briefly address a couple of things and then talk about some of the films that were made about the Alamo and which ones I recommend as the best to watch. First up, the story of Travis drawing a line in the sand is said to be a myth, but it became a legend before the smoke of the battle had even cleared. I personally believe it happened, and while the deaths of the heroes I told you were of my own imagination, it is quite possible that they are not that far off from the truth. Historians to this day argue whether or not Davy Crockett died in combat or was executed by direct order of Santa Anna. If the latter is true, one theory was that his generals warned him not to kill Crockett, but his mind was made up and he gave the order for the deed to be done. There is also indecision as to how Travis met his fate, whether he died instantly or slowly, or also if Bowie was even able to raise his head. The truth may never fully be known due to the fact that the battle happened in the dark of night, more or less, and with all the noise of the battle and flashes of cannon fire, it would have been impossible to know who killed who. What we do know is this, that these four brave men, and roughly 180 others, died on March 6, 1836, in defense of liberty. There's one last point I wanted to make before I share with you the movies I suggest. And I mentioned this in my first episode about it, but I wanted to touch on it again. I consider the Alamo a spiritual inspiration as well as a patriotic one. For these men believed in their cause enough that they were even willing to die for it. Shouldn't we as Christians be willing to do the same? Think about it. We've been called to spread the good news no matter where we are and no matter the danger. We ain't going to grow the kingdom solely from people attending church on Sunday mornings. So let's take some inspiration from the Alamo Defenders and fight the evil powers of Satan and his cronies till we have achieved victory through Jesus Christ. 
raise the banner, and fire the cannon shot in defiance. Let's follow Christ and defeat sin once and for all. Now on to the movies. Folks, there's only been a small handful of movies made about this event, and I haven't seen all of them, I must admit. Uh, one was a silent picture, another one was made in the 1930s, and then another one was made in the 1950s. But from what I can gather from reading the critics' reviews and their synopsis online is that they were all rather lame. Now, if you have seen any of those and disagree, please reach out and I will gladly change my opinion. But I have seen four movies about the battle and I wanted to rank them for you now. I do not have a script in front of me, so I am shooting from the hip here. And for those of you on Rio Linda, it means I'm winging it. Okay, so... I'm going to rank them from worst to best, and mind you that all of them had significant historical flaws in them. So I'm going to rank them based on what Hollywood is supposed to do, which is entertain the audience and engage them in the story. Alright, so starting off with number four, The 13 Days of Glory. This film, folks, this film was made in the late 1980s and it starred Alec Baldwin as Colonel Travis. James Arness as Jim Bowie, and Brian Keith as Davy Crockett. Now, the problem I had with this film was that the acting was cheesy and that the casting was poorly done. You had James Arness playing Jim Bowie. James Arness was 25 years older than his character, as well as six inches taller. Uh, you have Brian Keith, who was also in his mid-60s playing someone who was not even 50 yet. The only casting choice that was correct was Colonel Travis, and Alec Baldwin was in his early 30s, I believe. And so, when you do that, it it really does hinder the story. And they also made every single one of the heroes die the glorious death. Slow motion, blaring music... And yes, that is entertaining. That is how you want the heroes of the Alamo to go out. But we know that is not true. Now, that is entertaining, as I said. But the story was cheesy. And up until a few years ago, I didn't even know it existed. So that is why I rank it as number four. Number three, The Alamo 2004. This film was made to be epic. You had multiple films in the early 2000s that were just on an epic scale. You had Gladiator. You had Master and Commander. You had Troy. You had Saving Private Ryan. You had The Lord of the Rings. All of these films were epic. And The Alamo was made to be an epic film. And it was an epic bust. Now, why was that film an epic bust? The acting was superb. They did such a good job with it. And that, I believe, was their problem. They decided to film it for what it was. They filmed it for history's sake and not for the legend's sake. And that is a very key element that they forgot. And why I say that is because the Alamo is the stuff of legend. When the legend becomes fact, you print the legend. Now, I am not saying do away with every single historical fact and print only legendary stuff. No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is include some of the legend with it. Include some of the humor. And that is something that they forgot to add into it. It was a very dreary film. 
It was dark, and when I say dark, I mean the, the light setting, and that is why I believe it was a total bust. I mean, it was one of the biggest box office bombs of the year, and it, it could have been so much better. It could have been so much better, and maybe it was before they edited it down, but that's how it ended up, and it was a total disaster. Now, number two, this one, this number two was my number one my entire growing up life. I loved it because of one sole reason. It did not show Davy Crockett dying. And that is Walt Disney's Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Now, it only focuses about 45 minutes or less on the Alamo, and that is because it was the story of Davy Crockett. So it followed his entire life from the time of the Creek Wars through his time in Congress to his final episode of the Alamo. And it was well done. It was entertaining. You had humor. You had the legend. You had him in a coonskin cap the whole time. You had him just rip-roaring and taking down all the enemy. And at the end, you had him swinging his rifle butt, inspiring millions of children to have a good time outside playing with their toy guns and wearing coonskin caps. It literally did that, folks. Hundreds upon thousands of children got coonskin caps, boys and girls, because they loved the Davy Crockett saga. And another fun fact for you, that TV series was enough to give Walt Disney the money he needed to build Walt Disneyland in Southern California. I'll bet you didn't know that. <laughs> but, like I said, it didn't have enough they did a really good job with it. They did take some liberties with it, as every other version has. They had all of the main characters dying almost at the same time. And it just... It, it could have been better, but it was the 1950s for television. That is something that is very key and important. But the music was phenomenal. That is one of the best parts about that version. Okay, so on to my number one. This one I actually despised for many, many years because of the very same reason I loved the Davy Crockett Disney version. And that is because they showed Davy dying a rather grisly death, and that is John Wayne's The Alamo, which was made in 1960. Now, why do I rank it as number one? Well, the answer is simple. It's the most entertaining. When you look at the story and how John Wayne really really focused on the construction of the Alamo compound. It wasn't just this little adobe church. It was a full compound. He really got that down to earth phenomenally well. He constructed the entire Alamo from scratch. That takes dedication. He wanted to make this film for over 10 years before he actually got to it. He was looking for locations every single time he was making a movie in the southwest United States, even in Mexico. But all in all, it was very entertaining. He had his favorite scriptwriter, James Edward Grant, write the script, and he took many, many liberties. And he did get one of the most key things down, which was the animosity between Jim Bowie and Colonel Travis. And 
The one thing they got really, 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 really wrong was that Jim Bowie was healthy the entire time up until his death, and that was completely inaccurate. It also showed Bowie having the slave as opposed to Colonel Travis, and that just happened to be some liberties, but they portrayed Jethro, who was Jim Bowie's slave, in the most honorable way, and they have Davy blowing up the powder magazine. That, unfortunately, did not happen. Like I said, they they stab a lot of the main characters, and I, I always got horrified when I watched that particular moment, and I, I still have a hard time watching some of those scenes because they're my heroes. They are some of my absolute heroes, and watching John Wayne die on screen is always hard for me to watch because I am a true fan. So... When you put all of that together, they also incorporated the humor that was needed to keep the picture going. When you had a slow movement, they had a comedic actor say something hilarious and they were off. Or they had them blowing up a whiskey barrel and the reaction to that. It was really good. And the dialogue was good. The the patriotic feeling was good. And John Wayne produced and directed it. And that was why it was his project. He did not want to star in it. That is something that a lot of people forget. He did not want to star in it. But he had no choice to make the film a success. He had to take on the lead role. And it really, really did uh, exhaust him after that. But it was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best uh, Soundtrack. And it was just a really, really good movie. He had his entire group of actors with him. So that is my number one. But as I said, all of those films have significant historical flaws. And or just were not entertaining. So all in all, I would love to see another version of the Alamo made. Is it going to happen? I don't know. But... That's my official recommendation. In their order of worst to best, you have The Alamo, 13 Days of Glory, the 1987. You can find this film on YouTube, by the way. Uh, The Alamo, 2004. You can find this at libraries or even in pawn shops, probably. Pawn, P-A-W-N, just in case any of you misheard me. (laughs) Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. The movie version is on Disney+, Plus, but I actually recommend you watching the entire miniseries, which is available random places. But it's three episodes, phenomenally well filmed, but if all else fails, you can check it out on Disney+. Plus And The Alamo 1960, there is a roadshow version of this film, and that is the director's cut. I have been wanting to watch that in its entirety i've not been able to do so just yet but i fully intend to but the 1960 version is available on dvd it is not available on blu-ray which is surprising but it is available on dvd so i would recommend you checking that out do not watch it with little little children i recommend because it is quite messy at different times There is no sexually inappropriate material in the film that I believe some people may disagree. So I would recommend you watching it before showing it to your children. But all in all, that is my four recommendations for the event. So go check them out.
And as always, we will be back after this. for this episode of the snowman podcast thank you as always for listening i hope you enjoyed it references used in this episode include www.history.com forward slash topics forward slash mexico forward slash alamo wikipedia.org forward slash siege of the alamo history.com forward slash davy crockett history.com forward slash william barry travis history.com forward slash jim Bowie. www.history.com tshaonline.org forward slash handbook forward slash entries forward slash Joe. This is a reference into who Travis's slave Joe was. www.thealamo.org briancrandall.com forward slash eight movies about the Alamo. John Wayne's The Alamo, which was made in 1960. Disney's Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. The 2004 version of The Alamo. Dimitri Tiomkin's soundtrack for the Alamo 1960, and Carter Burwell's soundtrack for the Alamo 2004. I hope that this story inspired you in some ways, or at the very least, entertained you. If you liked it, please share it with your family and friends so they can enjoy it as well. The Snowman Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Reason FM, and YouTube. And please leave a five-star review so it will make that easier for them to find. Or, as I always say, just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now, yeah? Hey, uh, fun fact. Did you know that Davy Crockett had three ears? I'm serious. He had his left ear, he had his right ear, And he had his wild front ear. Ooh. I think that one's best left in the forest. Yeesh.